Welcome back to Gaming with Gage, your podcast for role-playing games and the periphery. Thank you for being here. This week, I had the chance to sit down with Dan Repiger of Fear the Boot, and it was awesome. We talked about names and the infamous Florida Man for most of the episode, though we did get into some gaming topics. Dan's Skies of Glass setting is a super rich world, and we dived into the way he builds sessions and his incredible Session Zero. Seriously. Like, I can't talk any more positively about the way uh, Dan does his group template and sets this whole party up with his players. It's it, it's very incredible. It's what we're all shooting for. <laughs> uh, this is our second to last episode for season two, and it's crazy to me that we've already done over 30 episodes. Uh, I'm glad everyone seems to be enjoying the show because I've been having a blast doing it. And uh, next week, we're going to close out the season just as we did last season with Who's Agatha. So, for all of those. People out there who have been wondering, where's who's Agatha? It's coming. If you have uh, great ideas for topics or guests, you can reach out to us on our website, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and our Discord. I'm active on all of them, but Discord is a good place to get, uh, get to me very, very quickly. <laughs> we ask that you please subscribe, rate, and review the show on uh, Apple Podcasts and Androids and Google Play. It really helps the show out. Um, some of you guys have gone in and done that, and it's been just such a great help, and we really appreciate it. Um, but with all that out of the way, let's jump into our chat with Dan Repiger. I was glad you were able to do the show. Um, I had reached out, at first I reached out to Eric, because as weird as this is, I found Fear the Boot through Gamer's Table. Mm-hmm. Um, I reached out to Eric, I was like, hey, does Dan do interviews? Because <laughs> I, I have a policy of, uh, I don't like to email people unless they have an email that they've put out into the world. Because I feel no, that's like, fair enough. Yeah, I feel like people who want to be contacted will make it available, and people who don't probably don't. Um, and he was like, "I don't know. Talk to Chad." <laughs> <laughs> well, see the okay. The issue here is not that I don't have public contact information. The problem is that between the chaos of my own life, holding down a day job. Uh, various things that I struggle with. If you put all of the communication that I get on top of that, I just don't do a good job keeping up with it. And so I need to hire a secretary. Uh, I don't have the money to do so, but I need to hire (laughs) a secretary to basically filter all of my communication. But the closest thing you have to that is Chad, who can kind of serve <laughs> as a gatekeeper, where if you go talk to Chad and Chad actually decides in his mind that it's interesting enough, he'll mention it to me. And I work with Chad on top of seeing him socially all the time. So he has plenty of opportunities to tell me if he remembers. Now, that's <laughs> the thing with Chad is you have to tell him three times because uh, Chad's ability to remember things is about as good as my ability to reply to them but (laughs) no i don't mind people contacting me in the least it's just part of that is i may or may not respond i will probably respond but it will be a while like you won't hear from me immediately that's been an interesting thing about this uh this community uh like the role-playing you know tabletop role-playing games in general but like especially podcasters is there's very few people who haven't responded to an email Not everyone said yes, but even the people who said no were like, hey, thank you so much for the offer, but I'm super busy at the moment, you know? And it's just a very nice community. (laughs) Oh, yeah, it is. And I think to some extent it has to be 
uh, partially because it's a very small community. Uh, when you compare role-playing games to so many other entertainment industries, whether you're talking about movies or video games, I mean, each of which have their own organizations and, and small industry feel in their own right. But role-playing games are so incredibly small that everyone knows each other. And on top of that, it's not to say that it doesn't have its jerks, but role-playing is a hobby that is fundamentally social in nature. You don't do well in the hobby if you can't at least pretend to get along with other people. <laughs> and so once, because I say there aren't people that are total jerks. I've, I've met them, some of them I could name. Uh, some of them would be recognizable names, some of them wouldn't. But... <laughs> They're not the majority, because I don't think our hobby allows for it. Uh, it's not like you can just kind of run down a, uh, a scandal by disappearing into another company, because, once again, it's just too small of an industry. I mean, if, uh, let's take Kevin Symbietta, you know, if he ever quit doing his Rift stuff, or his Rift's Megaverse, which, I, okay, consists of multiple games... But if he ever switched to doing something else, I mean, that's what we would always remember him for. Mm -hmm. You know, Monty Cook, let's take him as sort of an opposite example, where he has a very positive reputation that follows him everywhere he goes. And so, goodness gracious, I mean, I, he does this, and I think he is right to do it. His name is bigger than his product names. And so if you look at anything he's done, particularly recently, it is Monty Cook's whatever. <laughs> yeah, like Numenera and stuff. Yeah, it's not whatever by Monty Cook. It's it's Monty Cook's Numenera. And <laughs> I think he's right to do that because his name, at least, you know, in the lead up, okay, maybe eventually the products outstrip him in size. But, you know, he really does lead the product. And so I might walk into a game store and it's like, wow, I have no idea what this product is. But, oh, it's Monty Cook. Okay, well, I know something about it. Or at least I have some sense of the kind of quality he's going to bring to it. And it's not to say you can't find people like that in other entertainment industries. But it's just not, it's just not as easy because they're all bigger industries. And so, yeah, you get a few names that float to the top. Or you get the people that are real buffs for that kind of entertainment who can maybe recognize a particular comic book author or something like that but it just doesn't happen as frequently and you think that has to do more with the size of the community well both the size and the nature of the community i can sit in a room by myself being a bitter and hateful person and watch a movie just fine a role-playing group's not going to survive that way or maybe i can find my one circle of equally bitter people and we huddle in a basement together and remain really insular in nature, which is how the hobby functioned throughout a lot of the 70s and 80s. But if you don't keep that group together, that's the end of it. Yeah, I mean, forget trying to adjust to something like a gaming store or a con, or even trying to build up a new group at your own home. I mean, if you can't be friendly with strangers, if you can't be chill, if you can't once again, at least fake the smile. How far are you really going to get? Yeah, on every level. Okay, sorry, we've been going for a little bit. I just want to say for anyone who doesn't recognize your your beautiful, beautiful voice, 
<laughs> um, that it's, you know, Dan, it's Reperger, right? Yes, that's correct. And you're one of very few people who's gotten it right the first try is Reperger. <laughs> I, my last name is Verino, so I deal with similar struggles. Um, uh, from Fear the Boot, who is uh, one of the hosts of Fear the Boot and the game master and world creator of Fear the Boot's AP world, Skies of Glass. Yes, that is correct. Was that, was that succinct and perfect? Yes, that was absolutely perfect. Cut it, we're done. Roll the <laughs> outro music. Uh, and before we go on, you want to know my trick with last names that I've, I have found? Okay. I, I figured this out when I, was, uh, when I was a waiter, and I would read the last name on a che- uh, credit card before I handed it back to say, you know, thank you, Mr. So-and-so. Um, is you read it out loud, and the first time you read it, you sound it out the way we all learned. So, you know, it was like rapper, jerk, you know, that type of thing. Sure. But before you feel confident in it, you have to say it like you've said it before. And that's the only way I've ever been able to explain it to people. So you look at a name, you sound it out, and then say it out loud to yourself when no one can hear you, and you say it like you've said it a hundred times. And I was, na- I, names from all over the world, different cultures, I would get them right, but it's because you have to pretend you already knew how to say it. And once in a while, you get it so wrong, though. <laughs> But it works well, pretty it, well. Usually what I go for, I have a slightly different trick, which is I try to figure out the nationality of a name. That also and helps. And then go, go by its pronunciation rules. The reason you cannot do that with my name is it doesn't have a nationality. It does not trace any farther back than Ellis Island. We think it is from the Austrian name Ripinger. Uh, but if that's the case, then it should have a hard G at the end, not a soft G. So it should be Rupperger, not Rupperger. But even the first part of the name of Repper, we don't know where that's from. So it, this is, forget making it to waiters and waitresses. <laughs> Somebody at the immigration brutalized the name, and that is now the family name. So there's, it has no nationality, and so therefore there's no pronunciation to jump off of, which is why the two I get most commonly are Repinger, because that starts to fit simpler pronunciation schemes. Or, and this one blows my mind because it requires a whole lot of extra letters, but Rupper Burger. <laughs> but at least I can see where that fits into other names, right? I at least see, I see the pattern there. Yeah. You, you understand how they got there, though they added yes. a bunch. It'd be like if somebody looked at the name Dan and called me Dane. Okay. Well, at least I understand how we got there. Dane is a real name, and it's one letter off from mine and whatever. And so okay, I follow the I follow the path there. Yeah, for my first name, it's the consonant sound is what people uh, tend to follow. So obviously the number one like is Gabe, um, because that's one letter off. But I will get Chase, Dave. It's all with that same consonant Chase? sound. Because it's that A sound, Gage, Chase, Dave. Like it's, it's yeah, it's happened before. The weirdest one was Zade. But I went to school with a Zade, so that was, I think, why that one popped into someone's head. Zade. Okay, I've never read that one. I've never heard. I know a Zane, but I don't know a Zade. So I went to, I just had to look this up, and Zade is, first comes up in Urban Dictionary. What's like a, somebody's uh, vanity entry. No, Zade is a boy's name. It's an Arabic name, specifically. Go fig. Uh, that's a new one on me. I have never met a Zade. Uh, yeah, I went to school with one. Um, but yeah, and then you have my name, which is like everyone assumes is English because of the English surname, but is actually French and is most popularized by uh, Pet Cemetery. 
I will tell you straight up, I actually uh, presupposed it was a pseudonym. Oh, really? No, that's <laughs> that's my birth name. Because <laughs> it's like, it, no, it's just one of those names. It's like such a slick sounding name. It's like Max Powers or something. You know, <laughs> I just I just assume this has to be a pseudonym, which is fine. You know, people on the Internet, I use my real name. Some people don't. And I get why they don't. And so when I saw, you know, Gage and some what looks like a uh, somebody spilled the Perquacky dice, if anyone remembers that game, <laughs> and uh, taken from like a Dragonlance book. So it's like, surely this has got to just be a made-up name. <laughs> no, I have uh, the, the most common thing. I don't run into a lot of people who just grabbed it and liked it. Um, but a lot of people have uh, the surname Gage and decide to just go by it. Um, that is that is what I've run into more, and I've only met two other gauges where it was their first name. It's become more popular, but still weird. No, well, and it's it, it, as a real name or as a pseudonym, it's not that bad. There was a guy that I encountered some years back. I this was Gen Con, man, two thousand eight, maybe. I, I couldn't tell you for sure. Um, and when w- we were at the Ennies. Well, so maybe that does date it. Uh, <laughs> but when we were sitting at a uh, the table, there were these freebies from game companies on the table. And one of them was a little figurine pre-painted of Raistlin from Dragonlands. And I think it was for some kind of D&D minis game that was going around at the time. I don't remember if it was clicks-based or how it worked, but it was some kind of self-contained minis game separate from the role-playing game. And when we came back, I mentioned on the show that I had gotten this. And some guy emailed me and said, hey, if you don't want it, which I didn't, he said, do you mind mailing me that Raceland figure? Because I'd really like to have it because I love the character. And that's what I named my son. (laughs) And I'm like, so you're thinking like, dude, I don't mean to judge you. I mean, but come on. He's a bad guy. (laughs) Well, even that aside, can, can you imagine this this poor kid? who grows up to be, you know, let's say he's in his 30s, 40s, whatever, and suddenly you have Raceland CPA. I mean, <laughs> how, how does this play out on, like, an office door or something? I will say I can't actually judge because uh, I had my son this year, and I did name him after a beloved character from a novel of my youth. <laughs> but I named my uh, I named my son Vanyan, V-A-N-I-O-N, because my thought process was he could go by Van, and that's not as crazy. You know, you got no, no, that one, that's not as bad as Raceland. And Vanyan is a real uh, surname. So there is, even if it's not typically a given name, it does at least have some, you know, non-fictional basis. So I, it's an unusual name. Oh no! It's listed here as an, apparently no. It is a actually a real name. It's an obscure name. That's so interesting because when I looked, all I found was I think there was one, like, basically like a streamer who had died in Europe, <laughs> or like a DJ named Vanyan. Um, but I got it from Dave Eddings. It's apparently a variant of the name Finian. Wow. Which, yeah, I, we're learning all kinds of things today. 
I don't know how many of these are useful facts, but I'm going to have you on the show just even when I have another guest because you are a very quick fact checker. <laughs> it is wonderful. Well, yeah, and I do this better on my own show, except I record with my back to the computer. So <laughs> I, I can't check these things that fast. But otherwise, I'd do it on my own show. Instead, I just have to edit out all the things I say wrong. <laughs> so keep myself from sounding like an idiot when I misquote a fact or mispronounce a name or something like that. How long has Fear the Boot, speaking of your show, how long has been Fear the Boot been out? Over 12 years. The first episode was released May 15th of 2006. I'm, I'm trying to think in my head. The last, th you and the last two guests, I'm trying to put you guys all to try and figure out who came out first. Because uh, I had, uh, you know, I have you right now. I had Stu Venable. We were uh, there before Happy Jack. And Tim Lanning from Drunks and Dragons. I'm 99% sure they're drunks again. So let me, I'll look that up since I'm quick enough to check these things. But <laughs> I, I'm they pretty sure. Years. So, yeah, and I, I don't know Happy Jack say, but I know they came after us. Um, and for some reason, who corrected that to Drunks and Dragons? There we go. So, Drunks and Dragons, when was their first episode? Yeah, there are shows around that are older than ours, but I, I, off the top of my head, believe we are the oldest of the unbroken shows, meaning that we've not had a hiatus or something in the middle. And I'm trying to think if there's any show that actually does predate us. Like, for example, All Games Considered. Um, they are older than we are, but they had a hiatus somewhere in the middle there. Um, Pulp Gamer, I believe, is a little bit older than we are, but they've changed up their format pretty radically over the years. Uh, so in terms of a consistent show, I believe we are the longest running. Now, that I might be wrong, but I can tell you at least with pretty good certainty that though the exact origins of podcasting are a bit hazy, the first thing that's generally accepted to be a podcast was somewhere around 2004 or five. So we had the advantage of being pretty early into the hobby within a hobby of the podcast within role-playing games, and then just the, the ability to stick around uh, and just keep that going. And to some extent, I say that with a uh, bit of sorrow because there were some really good shows back in the day that I wish had made it. Unfortunately, they didn't. Uh, but, you know, that is what it is. You can't, it's, for almost everyone that does it, this is a hobby, this is not a job, so they do it as long as they want to, and then real life gets in the way, or something comes up, and that's that. Yeah, I've. that's why I, I set up this show with seasons, um, specifically so that, like, yeah, I wouldn't skip a week. <laughs> At the end of a season, it might be a month or two before we come back, but you, you will know that when the season starts, you get 16, guaranteed. Yeah, and that's something that a lot of shows have done, is that's been their format from the start, is to do seasons. Uh, and sometimes that's to give them a break in the middle. Sometimes they do binge recording. Uh, there's a few shows that I've dealt with over the years where they, uh, they might do all the recording over the course of two or three nights and then just get... 20 hours of show and then release them in one hour blocks over the next X number of weeks. 
And I mean, for example, it's what Gamers Table does. They die, they don't binge record. They do seem to knock out several episodes per sitting. Uh, at least the one time that I sat in with them, they did two or three episodes back to back. But they also don't record in a home studio. They actually rent out a studio. So they kickstart a season. They use that to rent the studio. And then they go out there and they record several episodes per sitting. And the guy that runs the studio then sends Eric, I think, the audio. And then he does post-production to taste and releases it. So Drugs and Dragons, their first episode was November 12th, 2012. Ah, so you've got them by a couple of years. <laughs> yeah, then I've got some years on. Now, <laughs> uh, I want to look up Happy Jacks while we're talking, because I actually don't know when their first episode was. But speaking of older shows, and this may be lost on anyone that's picked up role-playing podcasts more recently, but the how I always say Happy Jacks, and I've told them this, and this is a compliment, is I see them very much as the spiritual successor to one of the oldest and, at its time, really popular role-playing podcasts, which was called Dragon's Landing Inn. And just the way that they... I don't know. There's just something about their sort of... Their, their social energy, the way they talk, the way they come across, that reminds me of DLI and they're less ordered than DLI was, but I think that's a good thing because when we first got into podcasting, it's human nature that you tend to imitate what you see. So when people were starting podcasting, they were imitating radio news magazines. And so they were really strict on time. They tended to have segments. The segments had bumpers and stingers and I mean, it was really, they even used the lingo of radio. And that was something that DLI did. And I always felt it was something that kind of held them back. And when we came into it, we made the decision we weren't going to listen to any other shows before we recorded ours. And we have in the years since gone back and listened to others. But we tried not to be influenced by anything. And so we just sat down and started an open roundtable sort of conversation. And I'm not going to say that we were the first in the niche to do it, because we certainly weren't. But it does seem like in many ways we were the first of the podcasts to succeed in that format. Um, succeed in America, both in terms of numbers and lifespan, I guess. And when did you guys launch the AP feed? That, that's more recent. That is much more recent, because we resisted that for years. Um, and I'm not sure if we... That was in July of 2017. So that's not even, that's just over a year old now. <laughs> that's crazy though. I didn't even think it was that long ago. I thought it was less than a year, but yeah, it's been just over a year now. I, I, I knew when it was, but that's just because I'm finally going back through and listening. <laughs> <laughs> I jumped on with the new, uh, the new arc. Okay. So the one where they're in Illinois instead of, uh, in and around St. Louis. Yeah, and I think partially that's because at the time uh, I had so many AP podcasts and you guys were very unapologetic in the fact that you didn't want to do any editing or, uh, you know, like, you know, you guys just wanted, I think you guys had a whole episode where you were like, we're going to be doing this, it's going to be raw and what happens at our table and if we're eating, we're eating and if we're farting, we're farting. Um, <laughs> and I think, at the, I think at the time I was like, I don't have time for that. 
<laughs> um, but I loved the regular show. And then it got to a point where I was like, <sighs> listening to the regular show where I was like, I'm going to have to listen to that freaking AP. Um, and you had Eric on the show who, who I love. And then I think it was, it was actually pretty recently that I was like, oh God, Brandon's on it now too. <sighs> and so now I'm slogging my way through trying to catch up. <laughs> Which was supposed to be Shannon, by the way. Um, Ooh, the fiance stole the spot. Yeah, so what happened was... Shannon was on this show. I just want to put that out to the listeners. <laughs> Shannon, go back in the feed the last season. Shannon was on the show. <laughs> when we uh, had... So we had the, the time, or at the time, rather, the players were Brodor, Chad, Wayne, and Eric from Gamers Table. And Eric had been on our show a time or two, and he seemed like a good guy. So, like, hey, let's see if he wants to play in this AP. And uh, when Brodor had to leave because of job stuff, uh, now he has now come back, but he had to leave for a while. Um, Eric was like, well, let me see if somebody from my show wants to take the spot. And he was thinking Shannon. So he thought, well, also might be nice to have, you know, just have a woman on the show, you know, added a little variety, whatever. So that's fine. And apparently he goes and tells Shannon and somehow Brandon overhears this and jumps the spot. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, I, I don't know the details, but apparently kind of socially strong armed her out of it. And uh, so, yeah, now he's on the show. Which is very funny because I recently slid into Brandon's slot as a guest host for uh Eric and Shannon show uh, Geek Speakers. <laughs> so it's like everyone's just dodging into each other's seats. I, apparently, that, that see, that grew some mess. They need somebody <laughs> to sort them out. And I've tried. I've tried. <laughs> I, I mean, good heavens, I, I had to fund an entire season, or I didn't fund it, but I backed a season for them simply to get them to fix their name. To capitalize the T. Yeah, I made them capitalize the T because it's like, I'm tired of looking at your name and having no idea what these words are because <laughs> is it gamers table? Is it gamer stable? Cause that does in a way make sense. It does. You know, like if you talk about boxing or something like that, you have a stable of boxers. So having a gamers stable does make a certain amount of sense. And then we would just make fun of be like, well, maybe it's French for gamer stab lay. So it's, it's <laughs> like <laughs> gamer stab V and you just get to, make up what V would be, but somebody needs to bring some order to them. And I'm, I'm trying, I try so hard with such success. I will say as a, as a fan of gamers table and also a, an episode sponsor, <laughs> um, we, we, we sponsored an episode of theirs for the new season coming up. Um, we like them just as dysfunctional as they are. <laughs> oh, I love them dysfunctional because that that's part of the hilarity of it is it's like, I don't know. It, sometimes you watch people fight and it's disturbing. Sometimes you watch people fight and it's hilarious. They, they fight like the Three Stooges. It's great. <laughs> when they fight, it's to everyone's benefit, right? This isn't like watching ISIS go at it. You know, th this is something that just is amusing to watch. So I think their dysfunction's awesome. Uh, I just don't know. They know what the hell they're doing. Um, so where are you located, roughly? Like, what's, what state are you located in? So right now, at the moment, I live in South Florida, in West Palm okay. Beach, Florida, uh, Dumb People State. Um, 
<laughs> dumb people state, which is not dumb people area. This is a this is a nice area, the nice area, right? Um, and I'm, I was born here. I lived in New York City for ten years, and I came back um, in January. We are moving, my wife and I, and, and my little boy. Um, we are moving to Louisville, uh, Kentucky. See, okay, now that makes more sense because if you were to, if you dropped a bomb that took out the Midwest and the kind of northwestern part of the south. And when I say the south, I mean the states we would call southern, not the geographical south. Yeah. You would pretty much annihilate uh, the vast majority of the population of gamers and also almost all the podcasts. <laughs> it's I, true. And there are, yeah, and there are reasons for this, but almost all of it comes out of the Midwest and to a lesser extent the northern part of the south. We've noticed that there are a lot of shows out of Missouri, out of Illinois, out of uh, Indiana. Um, and so the fact that you're moving to Louisville, it sounds really about right. Now, as for Florida, I don't know if this is true or not, but what I've been told is that Florida is no worse than any other state in terms of having, you know, the world's most hapless superhero of Florida man. But it's it has something to do with these kind of name and shame crime reporting laws to where apparently things that occur in every state but just don't get reported get blasted out in Florida. And I don't know if this is true, but this is what I've been told. Well, do you guys have um, like the booking blotter and stuff like that? Um, no, I mean, now there might be individuals who watch that kind of thing. Well, it's not like a, so it's a, it's a website. So it's the type of thing where like, like if you're, if, if you're young and you go out partying with a friend and no one's heard from them, uh, you can literally go on bookingblotter.com and, or just Google booking blotter for Florida and you can find everyone's mugshot and what they were arrested for. <laughs> <laughs> it is so, it's a very weird, it's a very weird state. There's some really nice, like beautiful parts. There's some really cool uh, kind of trendy hip parts and then there's just really backwards craziness um, and it's like three different states because if you go to like the panhandle and northern central florida it's very southern and if you go um, like tampa area it's they they think they're from like it's very connecticut if you go uh southeastern corner like where i am uh it's it's got a very metropolitan feel but it, like really a miami is like uh, the best way I've heard it described is Miami is an international city that just happens to be located in the United States. <laughs> it's not actually. It feels way more Cuban, and then there's a huge Brazilian population. Um, and it, so it all comes together in this weird mismatch. Yeah, so I'm, I'm glancing around trying to see, do we have a statewide arrest register? And it does not appear we do. There are a few that occur here and there. Like, there's a few counties that have them. Uh, the Department of Corrections has one, but only for people currently actually incarcerated. Uh, it's not, we don't have this, like, running water for the state. <laughs> well, you could move to Florida, and then you could have that. <laughs> well, yeah, and I have no delusion. And even the one I'm looking at right now, this is from the Missouri State Highway Patrol. Only seems to go back a couple of days. Like it's, but so let's just grab one here at random and see if it's anything good. Oh, see, yeah, this is just, it's just the crime. It doesn't go into any detail about what they did. So, like, 
warrant for no insurance, failure to register, no valid license. It's not like That's he was wandering naked one. while riding on a moose or something, and it doesn't. Unfortunately, like the problem with like trying to stand up for Florida is my brother. Um, because my brother's the type of person he's actually he just got uh, he's in cur- currently in jail, um, and he has a different last name than me, so I won't blow up his spot or anything. But he's currently in okay. jail because uh, he was mudding. Um, his friend, who was supposed to be his designated driver, uh, had a heart attack. Oh my! This is his side of the story, mind you. So I don't know full accuracy. Um, okay. So then he drunkenly drove home and got pulled over with a beer in his hand um (laughs) and kept drinking it as the cop came up and when the cop came up he said what are you doing and he's like oh don't worry you're gonna arrest me anyway i just want to finish this (laughs) (laughs) so it's like i can't even be like well that's not ever like it's literally my brother my my brother is pulling this type of nonsense i can't (laughs) i I, you know what i believe the entire story i mean what why would you make that up? I mean, if 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 you're going to try and make yourself sound better, you wouldn't. This isn't the lie you would tell. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I mean, oh, it was a false positive, or they framed me, or blah blah blah, or the cop and I got into it over something, so he made this up. That's the type of story you'd tell. Yeah, not. My... I was driving with a. Uh, it's not even. I left the bar without my designated driver and had to struggle to get home because I was too dumb to call Uber or call a cab or whatever. He's got a beer in his hand. He is drinking while driving, not just drinking, you know, or, or driving under the influence. He is continuing to intoxicate himself while driving. I mean, this is his own story. I. It doesn't. My brother sat on a uh, case some years back. This was somewhere up in the Seattle area. And there was a guy who was dating some girl. And uh, she dumped him because he was abusive and got with another guy. And the first guy forced his way into the home. And apparently took a baseball bat or something and beat down the new boyfriend and apparently beat her up pretty bad. And when the trial went down for this, the guy's defense was, Oh yeah, I totally did it. But let me explain why she deserved it. Oh God. (laughs) It's like, you know, I really, I I have no doubt that in his mind, every fact he told there was completely true because that's not what you would make up for a lie. Yeah. Oh my gosh. That's, that's, Ugh, that's awful. Ugh. Yeah, so we're moving to Louisville because we'll only be like four hours from St. Louis, which has a lot of a uh, lot of gaming, um, and you know, six hours from Chicago, which you know has has a pretty good scene right now, and two hours from Nashville, and I wonder relatively close to Indianapolis too. Yes, uh, I think it's. I want to say it's two hours. And Indianapolis has a even outside of Gen Con has a really good gaming scene. Yeah, two hours and four minutes if you follow the speed limit. Which, yeah. You know, if. Of course um, I will follow the speed limit, Dan. Oh, no, I'm sorry. An hour 49. Two, hour, two hours and four minutes by bus. Hour 49 by car. Yeah. So, like, we're. So, it helps that, like, uh, part of my job is located there. So, it'll be. Uh, it makes sense financially, but it also makes sense in terms of gaming, which is always nice when those two things can coincide. 
Yeah, I'm glancing around the that area, and I know people that I know active gaming groups and so many cities within striking distance of there, Fort Wayne, Chicago, St. Louis, all over uh, northern and central Illinois. Not quite as much south of there. I mean, don't get me wrong, I'm sure there are gaming groups and gaming scenes in Nashville and such, but I just don't, off the top of my head, know of them. Yeah, so we're, we're pretty excited about that. Um, I wanted to ask you a little bit about Skies of Glass while I had you. Mm-hmm. So tell me the end of the whole story. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> the end of the whole story. You know, I it's strangely, okay, so Skies of Glass is a is a story of, uh, in, at least the way I'm trying to do it, is a story of human history. And so it, it's sort of like telling me the story of the 20th century. <laughs> okay. You know, okay, I can tell you broad arcs. I can tell you that there are events that mattered more than others. You know, I can tell you that there were things like uh, the councils post-World War II that created the United Nations and such, uh, and so were these world-changing events. But if I can boil Skies of Glass down to a singular narrative that focuses on a handful of characters the way that you could with something like Star Wars, in my opinion, I will have failed to do what I set out to do with the setting. So I can tell you that there are big events in the world <laughs> that matter, and I am actually letting my current gaming group decide how some of those events are going to go. Uh, but but, the, but the, main, the, the setting story is much bigger than that. Is what yes, saying. and the setting story will continue to go on, uh, regardless of how this particular event plays out. And there will be places that aren't going to be touched by that event, and that's that's very intentional, because Skies of Glass... It's the kind of setting that I want people to internalize. Uh, one of the great things about role-playing or fiction in general is that we put ourselves in the story. You know, we think about, well, what would I do in this situation? Or wouldn't it be cool if I had superpowers? Or whatever it is. And so we, we have that form of escapism. And Skies of Glass is the sort of setting, and it's a game that's designed such that while there are large named groups None of them truly overshadow the ability to tell a story in a small, isolated area. I want people to look at their hometown and say, this is the story of what's going on there. Because they know the place better than I do. They know their stories and their culture better than I do. And it makes it personal to them. Because they can talk about what happened to that 7-Eleven we used to all hang out at. Or what happened to this major landmark or something like that. Uh, there's some people that have worked out a story of their own. Uh, I, I wish I could tell you the name of these people, but I, I wasn't prepped to cite this. But they were uh, describing something. I, I want to say it's north central U.S. where there's a, a hydroelectric dam up there that's supplying power and there's a town that sort of maintains it and they have sort of a mixed relationship with like a computer or an intel a machine intelligence that basically maintains and runs the dam and so there's this weird power relationship excuse the pun between the machine the town that's right next or right around this dam and then the nearby towns that rely on it for electricity but i presume would only put up with so much and they came up with this really intricate story that isn't mine. 
and not because it contradicts mine, but because it's just this emptiness. I've never even thought about what's there. I don't want to think about what's there. You know, I only want to actually describe the places that are necessary to the story. I want somebody who's from Louisville to look at Louisville and say, well, here's what I think would happen to it. You know, here's the story that I want for that town or somebody who's from a small town to look at that and say, well, this is what would happen to my city and this is where things would go. And so there's a lot of stories I don't want to tell. So interesting. I, I guess I'm very drawn to it uh, because at the moment I'm also running a post-apocalyptic game um, in a very similar setting, but in a very different way. <laughs> you have a lot more technology than I do. <laughs> <laughs> Well, some of that's where they've been. They keep gravitating toward the handful of places that have technology. Uh, most of the world, and this is something that I kind of bemoan in one of the post games, is I don't feel I'm doing the setting justice because most of the setting is people just struggling in ruin and desolation, uh, you know, eking out a living from small farms and gardens and hunting and working with whatever tools they can scavenge or build with minimal technology. Uh, the technology they keep running into is partially because both the characters they design and the plot points they're most interested in keep taking them back to those tiny little enclaves of pre-war technology. That's so interesting because I, m mine was kind of reverse engineered because I wanted to do, uh, I heard about the West March's style of play. Um, and was so captivated by it, but I wanted to run it in a more modern uh, setting in Savage Worlds. Mm. Um, so then I went, how do I make, you know, lands unknown and a safe place and why they're going? And so I said, you know, 100 years ago, the world ended. You don't know why. Uh, you're the third generation now that's been born in this settlement that survived. And no one's left the town in 10 years. So there's no accurate maps. There's no accurate information at all. You're going out into nothingness. Um, now there's like you said, there's points of light as there are in any setting. Um, but listening to Skies of Glass, it just seems so much more accessible. But you're saying it's more the players. Yes, I'm saying that the technology they're running into is definitely much more the players because in the first game, uh, they opted to play around. I wouldn't call it an information age level society, but they opted to uh, play in and around one of the last few industrial level societies in the world. Um, and in this game, they're in a location that is far more low-tech, far more uh, backward, much more frontiersy. But they themselves are from a high-tech background. They came from a space station and came down to the planet with high-tech items. And so if you look at the groups they're encountering, I mean, what they're encountering is things that are incredibly low-tech, low-key. I mean, people just living in, once again, what they can scrape out of ruins and rubble and maybe in some cases organized into towns of just a couple thousand people in size. And those are the big towns. But it's hard to see that when they themselves are driving around in a hydrogen-powered truck with a robot. So that's really interesting. I wanted to go, when you're talking about like them specifically rolling around with a hydrogen-powered vehicle, um, when I was listening to uh, the session zero that you guys had mm -hmm. uh, for the for the new arc. Um, I've literally told people since then, I'm like, hey, listen, if you don't want to add another AP to your life because you don't have time, that is fine. You need to listen to their session zero. 
first of all, you don't really say no to them, which is, which I remember like, especially like Chad, I think Chad knows you well enough that he could, he'll push, 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 push. Can I have a brand new motorcycle if I take a cracked rib, like that kind of thing? Um, but listening to you just accept everything that they were giving you and building it into this world was pretty, pretty cool in and of itself. But when you did the group template and the questionnaire and stuff, I was just sitting there going like, I need to write all of this down because this is just insanely valuable. Well, fortunately, you don't have to write it all down because if you go to the site and you have the two session zeros, because there was a session zero for the second leg of the AP and the uh, session zero for the first, uh, the questionnaire and the group template that we were working through uh, both of them are linked off of that in PDF form. And if the group template is filled out, which it might be, you can find a blank version of that off of the resources section of our main site, www.feartheboot.com, as opposed to ap.feartheboot.com. But those questions are there. And that is something that if there is nothing else that we are remembered for in the annals of gaming, that if they're writing someday the history of gaming and there's three lines on fear of the boot what i have to hope we are remembered for and this actually goes back to the second episode of our show so this goes way back uh may 22nd of 2006 is the importance of game prep that so much of a game's success or failure is determined not by what happens in the game, but what happens before the game. And I can't tell you how many games of ours we've had fail or how many people we've had write into us with their gaming horror stories. And as I'm working through the, the series of events, it always comes back to this was a, this was a failure to prepare correctly. Um, you guys came into this without really setting yourself up for any kind of a cogent story. You weren't on the same page about what this was supposed to be or how it all fit together. You just handed the game master a bunch of puzzle pieces and expected him to make or her to make a cogent puzzle out of this. And that's not how reality works. And like I said, that was, that was something that we had observed for so many years uh, that the group template in one form or another is something that we had been using in our gaming group. I mean, I guess now going back almost no over 20 years, because we were using this back in like the mid nineties. And uh, some people that I know we've made a mark with it because for example, uh, one of the additions of shadow run references our uh, group template as a suggested resource for their players. That's awesome. But I, I don't tell players no a lot. I mean, unless they just have a terrible idea. But I, I take a somewhat different tact. I don't think yes and GMing is a good way to go. It comes from improv theater, and I think it works great in improv theater because of the fact that you have to keep the narrative flowing. You know, if there's an audience there, you have to keep them entertained. You have to keep the jokes going or the story moving or whatever it is. That's not the case in a role-playing game you have that opportunity to pause and negotiate at the metagame level, which is why I have always preferred uh, neither a no or a yes and format, but my default is a yes but. So, yeah, you can do this, 
but there's going to be consequences. There's going to be a price to pay. It's going to mean a change in uh, how the story plays or the power level of the enemies or whatever it is. And so I'm just, I'm going to adapt to what you're doing. There's always a but, you know, there, there's something that goes with this. And that's your guiding philosophy for the entire game. How, when you, when you sit down with your players, do you have an idea of a story to tell or are you waiting to hear what they want to play first? Are we talking the first game or are we talking every game thereafter? Because I handle them differently. Let's, let's talk both. <laughs> okay, so with the first game, I handle it somewhat uniquely in that I tend to have a highly scripted opening. And when I say highly scripted, I mean I have bullet points that describe exactly what is going to occur. It, it may be a bit plug-and-play, but I want to know, okay, here's almost the series of events that need to occur to get everybody moving, to get the plot going. And beyond that, here's a few really loose plug-and-play ideas, but I just don't know where they're going to go with everything. Now, once we get past that, that shifts in that I don't script anything, but those plug-and-play plot points become more defined because I start to have a sense of what interests them. And so I'm actually going to look here. and Let me see if I can find you an example uh, from one of our recent games where I did this. Okay, so so here is here's an example of this was from game one of the first leg of the Skies of Glass game. All right, so not not the prequel game where they were where Chad was playing a guy named Pops, but so bullet point one: give Chad a gold a gold coin for his success with a prior request from his patron. Um, and then he'll be given the request to find out the location of the burial site of Lillian Marshall. Now, okay, there's detail there, right? I've got two points there, or maybe three. He's supposed to be given a gold coin, A, specifically be thanked for uh, his success in the request that he was asked to do. So that's B. And then C is he's given his next task of look for the burial site of Lillian Marshall. Now, when this encounter occurs, where it occurs, does he talk to a person? Does he find a piece of paper? None of that's defined. So it's specific, but it's very, very movable. So I could push this up. I could push this down. I could do all kinds of stuff with it. Um, point two. So my, my second point on here. Uh, note that the water levels look good, which should allow them to cross the chain of rocks. Now, the chain of rocks is a... Uh, it's a feature underneath the Mississippi River near St. Louis. So that's what that's referenced to. So this is just a bit of setting. I could put this anywhere. Whenever they go to cross that area, I have here a note to tell them setting-wise that the water levels look good. And that's a, a note to me that I know to describe with this that probably the current's good, the weather's in their favor. These are positive conditions for getting their boat down the river. and. The chain of rocks can be a bit of a navigational hazard, but things are in their favor to cross it. So maybe we can throw in a roll there, but it's going to have a low uh, target number. It's not going to be real hard to succeed at that one. 
Uh, something a little more specific. Uh, Brodor's character's mother, uh, Cecilia, will come to see them off, and she'll have a solve for his character and try to convince him to ditch his old hat. Uh, or maybe this is Wayne's character. I forget who, who this was. Uh, tell, and I have a quote here. It's old, it's ragged, and it stinks of bad luck. <laughs> <laughs> but see, these are all very plug-and-play. It's enough specifics that I know what I'm doing, that I know what these mean. But, okay, so what happens if they, if Chad doesn't give me an opportunity to give him that information, they just straight hit the water? Well, no problem. On my sheet, I'll just put an X through number two, which will remind me I still need to deal with number one at some point. Um, and so, you know, these are all intentionally very movable plot points that describe things of interest and, and a plot emerges out of them. And as they go or don't go to these points, uh, it starts to reveal things about the world. Uh, for example, it's oldest ragged and it stinks of bad luck. That hat is bad luck. I mean, that's not a plot power, but it's kind of a hint that there's bad things about it, and if they continue their tradition of the man that wore it, they're going to eat an, or meet, I guess, eat as well, a negative ending as well. <laughs> uh, the things are not going to go well for them. And so, uh, you know, that gives me a way to uh, just kind of keep things moving along uh, without having a, a very strict script to keep to. But like I said, I do script the start of the game. Because the problem is I have I need to get them moving. And some people suggest we'll do the immediate res thing. If something blows up or you're getting shot at, well, who's shooting at you and why? What blew up? What do they see when they go out there? I mean, you still come to the same basic point of you have to script something. Okay, you're in a tavern, role play, go. How many good games have started off that way? Zero, or if they are good, it's because they become good later. I mean, it's awkward. It's difficult. I mean, unless you have a really hardcore bunch of coked up role players, that's not going to go well. The plug and play is the thing that I've been trying to figure out. So it's really interesting to hear you talk about that and, and read the note. I've I've been lately building like a let's see what they want to do, and if they don't have anything to do, here's something that's carefully prepared that can be dropped in anywhere. But I, I, that, you have a combination of abstractness and detail that is kind of a beautiful balance. I'm envious. Well, I'm trying to, I'm pulling up a, uh, okay, so th this is a, uh, this, this was from a, a sample game that we wrote up when I was trying to explain how I run a game. Um, this is an outline for a game that was never actually run. But, oh, here I've got some other sample plot outlines. I'm, I'm digging through my, my old stuff here. Um, okay, so this, this is one. Here we go. This is one that uh, actually did get used. This was from a uh, Skies of Glass game that was done years back. Um, so, like, bullet point one, I used a time frame. As they return to Cape, which is the town they're going back to. Okay, so I know what's going on. I can set the scene. I know where they're at. If I have to glance at my notes, I can see this. So I, I know where this goes and things. And like point two is upon reaching Cape. Point three is at the trial. Point four is if they stick around town contingency. 
point five is upon leaving town. So whether they do that immediately or not. Um, and so all of these, you know, kind of reference major points of location or points of time. And then I have details within them. So uh, if they reach Cape, a guy by the name of Kane will want a book they had. Uh, they'll learn that York, which was a guy in the town, has been arrested by an entourage from St. Louis. Uh, there's a bunch of incriminating things they found on his person. Um, and so, but he's a popular guy around town, so his trial's causing this big uproar. And about the time this is happening, this group of raiders will show up and start to threaten the town as well. So the town now has multiple threats to its stability. Um, and then, okay, what happens if this goes on to trial? Well, here's what happens there or could happen there. And, you know, something this ties back to is um, I have found a, a really, really valuable guide for me is to have a map. And when I say a map, I don't mean a literal map. I mean to have some sense of how it all fits together. Because digging out the details is easy. Well, let me give you an example here. Okay. All right, so let's say we're playing a role-playing game. I, want I you would to never play a role-playing game. Okay, well, that's good. <laughs> I don't want you going to hell. Uh, so let's just say we're playing a role-playing game right now. And I said for you, uh, and your, your task as a game master is I want you to describe for me, the player, um, that my day starts off on an average summer morning in South Florida. Go. Okay. Your day starts out on an average summer morning in Florida. Yes. The, yeah, the air is heavy with humidity and you hear mosquitoes in the distance. Okay. So let's, let's go ahead. That's a real quick shot. But... How did you get that information? You got it because you have context for that information. You live in South Florida, yes. right? Okay. Now, this is one of the reasons why it's easy for me to describe skies of glass occurring in places like St. Louis and Chicago and the points between. I know those very well. Mm -hmm. But there's something else I use as a map, which is, um, let's say that we were going to play a game. Uh, let's take Lord of the Rings. And we're going to play a game set in Middle Earth. And we're not playing any of the named characters, okay? So we're not Aragorn, we're not Frodo, we're not any of those characters. But we are going to be playing a group of characters that are in the world about the same time. Now, you're going to be able to describe for me, for example, that at a certain point in time, the if we're wandering around Rohan uh, during the time that the king is cursed, there's a good chance we'll encounter the writers of Rohan. Now, how do you know that? Well, you know that because of the fact that you have a sense of the broader picture. You have a sense of the context. You have a sense of the parts of the puzzle that are moving independently of any character. So if I'm playing a game in Middle-earth, the fact that the writers of Rohan left their capital, that has nothing to do with us. They did that regardless of us. The same way that when I'm down in South Florida, you can describe that setting independent of the kind of character I'm playing, right? You didn't, you, you never asked me who I was or what I was playing. It didn't matter. Yeah. Because the reality is not shifted. All right. So there's this concept that I came up with that 
I've been using for a long time, and we've described it on the show, and it's what I call my what's really going on document. And what I do in the what's really going on document is I describe at a really high level, these are the sorts of events that are occurring regardless of what the players do. And so if the players ever wander off a path, and I don't know what to do, I don't know where the plot goes. I don't know how to react to things. I have this map to refer back to, to say, okay, these are the kinds of things I want to accomplish in the course of this game. And so this is what I can look to, to see how have they just changed things? And who's going to take notice of that? And who's going to be pleased by that or upset by that? And things like that. Um, from the same game that I was running, that I just ran the or read the uh, those plot points from. So this is in an older iteration of St. Louis before I renamed the houses. But this is my what's really going on document uh, from that campaign. Uh, and so this is what presupposes is happening in the world if the party does nothing to interfere with these events. Now, let me stress before I read this, these are not intractable events. The party can alter these by what they do. Otherwise, what's the point of them playing? But if otherwise, this is where things are headed. So the and according to this document, the House of Steel is becoming concerned by the Ring of Territory the House of Grain is creating around the greater St. Louis area. They wish to create a satellite city of their own, but so far they've had no political jurisdiction for doing so. As a result, they hatch a plan to take over Cape Girardeau, uh, which is an important trading town to the south. Uh, they contact the mayor, parading as a house as House of Grain reps, offering to help him against a an army coming up from the south. Um, so they're already, you know, creating intrigue here. Uh, they hatch various plots around town aimed at slowly weakening both the southern army and the town uh, to make them vulnerable. Uh, and then it says they will op intentionally send open communication with the mayor about the southern subterfuge. Uh, and then have their own thugs kill the messenger, leaving the messages behind to be found. And then having lied about their identity, it will appear that this whole thing was actually being done by the House of Grain, which will give them the political leverage to take over Cape Girardeau. All right, so I, it goes on from there. I'm not going to read the whole thing. But there's the first part of the grand plot. Now, what are the players doing this? Maybe nothing, maybe know. everything. <laughs> yeah, maybe nothing, maybe everything. I maybe maybe right out the gate, uh, they choose a side with House Steel or House Grain, or they say uh, we're going to side with the mayor, or maybe they intercept this messenger and find out what's really going on, or burn the communication such that nobody ever finds them. And so, but whatever they're doing, I have enough sense of the overarching plot and the motivations that I can stop and readjust, right? I have some sense of what's going on here. Doesn't matter what they're playing, what they're doing. Okay, they caught the messenger, they burned the messages, the political opening's never created. But House Steel is going to know they saw those communications because the messenger got caught, probably somebody witnessed this, and suddenly the messages are gone. And so their political plan is now in danger of being exposed. So they've just created an enemy. I don't have to look past this document to see that playing out. I've heard you talk about the what's really going on document before. Um, 
but in reality, it's just almost like a scatter plot of plot for the characters to run in and out of as they please. Yes, I, I think if I was to describe it maybe a little bit more, it'd be imagine if the opening crawl of a Star Wars movie uh, overlapped with about the first half of the movie. <laughs> okay. Because, I mean, okay, th- right? So uh, the Empire is building a Death Star to blow up planets to intimidate and shut down rebellion. All right, that's what's going on. At what point in that story does Luke do anything meaningful to actually interfere with that? It's not until he shows up on the Death Star and takes Leia. Up to that point, apart from the fact that he's winding around with Obi-Wan, who knows something about Darth Vader, but doesn't seem terribly interested in being involved, he's not really done anything to change George Lucas's what's really going on document. The possibility that he's going to rise up to become this hero and blow up the Death Star, I mean, that movie could have ended in a meaningful way with Luke joining the Rebellion, and they're putting together a fleet, and the Death Star is still out there blowing up planets. That's still a meaningful story, and there's still more story to tell. I mean, I'll leave it like this for anyone who hasn't seen the movie, but look at how Infinity War ended. Yeah. Clearly that story's not over. Now, what if in one of those earlier scenes they had succeeded in getting the gauntlet or the gems away from Thanos? Well, obviously that changes things a bit. <laughs> Just a little. But Thanos is going to want it back, right? And he's still got his his guards, his black guard or whatever they're called. They're going to try and help him get it back. Or what ends up happening to the mind of the person that's now trying to wield it? Or uh, I mean, some a little somebody's going to put it on. Oh, of course. And I say, or a little spoilery, but this has been a meme going on. It's uh, what if uh, you know Thor hadn't made the decision to do a called shot to the head? Uh, it changes the game. <laughs> yes. It also changes the movie. <laughs> or put his hammer on it such that uh, the hit being the Infinity Gauntlet yeah. such that Thanos can't pick it up anymore. You know, I mean, these these change things. This is but, very spoilery. So anyone who hasn't seen Infinity Wars, just cut your ears out for a, a minute. Um, so I started to see people talk about that. Like, why didn't Thor hit him in the head? Um being like, oh, this is like a plot hole for the movie. And the response that I saw to it was amazing is, uh, no, he told Thanos straight out that you will die looking into my eyes. Um, and like the whole, the reason Thor like only hits him hard and it still allows him to snap his fingers is because Thor was still being Thor and being cocky and wanted to stare into his eyes as he killed him. And I was like, yeah, that's completely in line with the character of Thor. <laughs> I, I'll be interested to see if, if they keep with that for the next movie, the sequel movie, because I know obviously Captain Marvel is going to play a big role in that. I guess that's also a spoiler, but well, not really. But uh, I, I do wonder if they're going to keep with that, because if I'm not mistaken, is the next movie the last one that's being written by those two brothers or is it the first one that's not being written by them? Ooh, that is a heck of a question that I do Because up to this point, there's been that, I and I forget their name, it's the Whatever Brothers, that have been uh, kind of guiding the Marvel Cinematic Universe, but this marks the end of them guiding that. And so I'm not sure if they are writing 
the second half of Infinity War. That's somebody else. The Russo brothers. Russo brothers, yes. I kept wanting to say the Scolari brothers, which is a great Ghostbusters 2 reference, but has <laughs> nothing to do with Marvel. That's okay. I kept wanting to say the Coen brothers, and I knew I was dead wrong. Yeah, and then the Wachowski brothers came to mind, and I don't know if I'm even supposed to call them the Wachowski brothers. I'm not trying to be an a-hole. I'm just being honest. <laughs> I, I, I don't know what the proper way to <laughs> credit them for the Matrix is anymore. I would love to watch a, a Marvel's uh, Avengers movie written by the Sklar brothers. The Sklar brothers? <laughs> Just them floating around in electric chairs screaming a lot. I would, I would, I would watch that. I would too. <laughs> oh my gosh. All right, so I've been holding on to you for a very long time. Um, so before I let you go, uh, yeah, we're over an hour, gosh. Um, before I let you go back into the wild, um, I like to ask all of my guests, if someone's listening to what you're doing, whether that be the podcast or the types of games you're running, uh, and you could only give them one piece of advice, what would that piece of advice be? Uh, it's something we've said several times on the show, and I fully stand by. Um, the only way to lose at a role-playing game is to not have fun. If you're not having fun, you're failing. If you're having fun, it doesn't matter what we say or what any book says or what any person at con tells you. You're doing it right. That is very good advice. And also use Dan's group template because it's amazing. <laughs> well, it, what we talk about on Fear the Boot is if you want to play our style of gaming, or even if you don't, I think there's things people can cherry pick, is here's ways to get there and here's tricks we found to help that. But as, as, Joe, as facetiously cocky as we get, we do not have the right way to game. Nobody does. It's you have to find that for yourself and you have to do that for yourself. And if you're in a situation where you're not enjoying gaming or not happy with your group, stop wasting your time. Um, conversely, if you are happy, I don't care what people are saying to you. Don't let anyone shame you into or out of anything. Go with what you're doing. That is, that is fantastic advice. Thank you, Dan, so much for sitting down and chatting with me. Hey, well, thank you for having me on. I'd, I very much appreciate the chance to be here. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Gaming with Gage. I hope you guys enjoyed listening to our chat as much as we did having it. Um, as I said, this is the second to last episode of the season. So from here on out, it's one more Who's Agatha, and then we'll be going away for our hiatus that we do in between seasons. Um, I don't have a firm comeback date yet because... I have a you know, five-month-old baby and a lot of work coming up and a big move. Um, but I will be trying to get you that date next episode when we close out the season and have a better, stronger idea of when we'll be coming back. Uh, we have some cool stuff happening next season in the uh, Who's Agatha universe. We're going to bring in a couple of characters to do a side quest with uh, true fans. We'll remember Josh Sabrava who came in early in season one to help us out with some topic episodes. And we're also going to bring in uh, my friend Tom, who we hear talked about quite often. Um, and it's going to be uh, in the same universe, related to the same story, but it won't be with Amanda. So it's all going to be weaving and woven and craziness. As always, please reach out through the social medias, all of them, Twitter, Facebook, Instagram, and Discord. And we ask that you please rate, review, rate, subscribe, and review the show 
on Apple Podcasts, iTunes, um, Android, Google Play. I mean, we're not on Spotify, but go on Spotify and say, hey, where's Gaming with Gage? All of it. It it really helps us out, guys. That's all I'm going to do to bother you right now, and I will be back next week with Who's Agatha. Thanks, guys.